Well, we have the Proverbs series continuing this morning, living well in God's world. This whole series, the whole idea is that we're highlighting themes that are repeated in the book of Proverbs that give us insight into how God wants us to live well in his world. When we trust in Christ as our Savior and align our lives each day with Jesus, then we begin to experience life as God intended it. And the book of Proverbs helps us on that journey with everyday practical wisdom. All these short little sayings that offer God's insight and wisdom into how we should live our lives. So, let me just recap where we've been in this series. In week one, we talked about the starting point, that the beginning Uh, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so if we want wisdom, if we want to live well in God's world, step one is to have a right posturing before God. That we need to rightfully recognize His holiness and His greatness and His majesty and live in that mindset. uh, That God is so great. We have to respect Him and love Him and be in awe of Him. So the starting point is the fear of God. Week two... Uh, was walk with the wise. And we talked about how you will never walk the path that God wants you to walk if you have the wrong friends. And we talked about how to choose good friends and how to be a good friend according to the book of Proverbs. And last week, don't be lazy. And this this sermon was a challenging one. This definitely was challenging for me as well. And uh, the question was, how are you using the limited time that you have left on this earth? Are we wasting it away with luxuries and comforts, or are we willing to do what God has called us to do? And today, week four, we are going to talk about compassion, show compassion. And I thought in light of all of this giving that we're doing today, this would be a good message. And so our key point this morning is this, God has a heart for the poor and so should we. Very simple message this morning, not complicated. God has a heart for the poor, and so should we. A lot of people struggle with the Bible. A lot of people you know, come to the Bible and they, they struggle to interpret it. They struggle to understand it. Um, they find it complicated. But then there are teachings in the Bible that are crystal clear. Ideas or instructions or commandments or themes that are so often repeated and reinforced over and over and over that everybody who comes to the Word of God can walk away with absolute clarity as to what God is saying to us. And this is one of those themes. This is one of those ideas. This matter of caring for the poor, of loving the unlovely, of sticking up for the oppressed, of giving generously to those who have little, of demonstrating compassion on people who, for whatever reason, are suffering. These instructions are among the most clear instructions of the Bible. You can't read the Bible and walk away without a sense that part, a big part of what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, to be a child of God, is to care for the poor. And the book of Proverbs makes this more obvious perhaps than any other book of the Bible. It's just laid out 
over and over and over again in the book of Proverbs. And so this sermon this morning is mostly going to be, be me just reading the Bible to you. And I'm going to let the Bible do most of the preaching. So we're going to be, again, like in Proverbs, it's not, not everything is in one spot. Everything is scattered throughout the book. So uh, I'm going to be reading various places, and uh, the scriptures will be on the screen. Let me just say a little prayer before I continue. Lord God, as we come to your word this morning, we approach it humbly, and we come, Lord, seeking your wisdom to speak through it. So Holy Spirit, fill me now, and fill our hearts and minds with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start with Proverbs 3. Proverbs chapter 3, two verses here, says this. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it's in your power to help them. If you can help your neighbor now, don't say, come back tomorrow, and then I'll help you. So if you have resources to help a person in need, help them. Don't delay. Don't make them work for it. If you have the power to help, help. Simple. Proverbs 19, next one. We're just going to blow through these real quick here. Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Wow, that's a cool thought, isn't it? You might think that when you brought food this morning and donated to the food bank, or when the youth group went out on Tuesday night and brought in all this food, that they were giving food to the food bank. But actually, not only were they doing that, but also they were lending to the Lord. You were giving this food to God. And he says, he will give it back to you. That when we give, without expectation of getting anything back, but we just give because God has called us and because we are generous and because uh, we love the poor as God loves the poor, God repays us with all kinds of blessings. Proverbs 29, so the next one. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. The Old Testament law, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, actually, um, had very specific rules for caring for the poor, for showing compassion. And uh, here in, in Proverbs, it calls them the rights of the poor. They had rights in the Jewish law. And they, they, they had, and still have, I would say, a God-given right to dignity, to respect, and to support. We shouldn't see these as just... Uh, extra needs that people have that we have to, you know, no, these are, these are God-given rights. Everyone has God-given human rights. And, uh, and the scripture says here, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. We care about those things and we're willing to act on it. Uh, next one, Proverbs 28, whoever gives to the poor will not want. Again, that idea that God will bless you and God will, will uh, repay. But he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. And then in uh, Proverbs 21, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Don't ignore the needs of the poor. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear about it. I just want to keep scrolling, you know. Uh, I want to get to the, good, the, the happier things. I want to get to that funny video. I want to get to the, the meme of the cat. And so I'm just going to scroll past all this stuff about the problems in the world, because I don't want to have to think about it. Uh, man, we do that, don't we? Yeah, but the scripture says, don't do that. It says, whoever has a bountiful eye, a generous eye, an open eye, open ears, open heart, open hands, will be blessed. 
for he or she shares his or her bread with the poor. To really see is to take action. Let's go to Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11 says this, Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. People curse those who hoard their grain, but they bless the one who sells in time of need. Uh, a few years ago, Steve McMullen, who is uh, ordained pastor in our convention and now is, works at Acadia Divinity College, um, he did a research project for his doctorate. And one of his, I'm not sure if this was for his doctorate or not, but anyway, one of the research projects that he has done over the last few years was that he studied churches that were dying. And I forget exactly how many dozen or two dozen or 50 or something churches that he studied, but churches that were really not doing very well. And he went and he did a study and, and found out what were all the things that they had in common, you know, the common denominators that were leading to their decline. And one of the, and I thought this was really interesting, one of the common denominators of churches that were declining was that they were hoarding money in bank accounts to save for a rainy day because they, the writing was on the wall and they saw that they were declining and they were worried that, you know, maybe next year we're not going to be able to pay our pastor so we better have money in the bank so that we can draw on that to pay the pastor for another year and get by for another year, maybe two, or, or make sure we can pay, keep the lights on because we don't have the money coming in. And so they would hoard all this money into bank accounts uh, and, and then when you looked at their budget, they were doing almost nothing to give to the community, doing almost nothing to serve the poor. And, and you see that exact thing right here, right? Be stingy and lose everything. People curse those who hoard their grain, but they bless the one who sells in time of need. So churches can't be doing that. Churches need to be, uh, you know spending the money as quick as we can get it, basically, to help the community. And I'm thankful this church is broke. Right, Terry? Pretty much. So, that's a good sign. You might think that's a bad sign, but it's a good sign. We're right on the line all the time, right? Pretty much? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, that's a good thing. Why, why are we broke? Well, because we're, we're, we're using the money for ministry, which is what I'm saying. Uh, we're not really broke, right, Terry? But I mean, not exactly. But we're not certainly sitting on piles of cash either. So that's what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. And there's a message for all of us too as individuals, right? Because churches do this, but sometimes we do this too, right? We've got nest eggs and we've got bank accounts that are sitting there collecting all kinds of interest, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But if we're hoarding all of our resources and we live in great big houses and all these things, while people around us can't even afford to eat, that is a problem. That's a problem. That kind of thing grieves the heart of God. Proverbs 14 says this, Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner. Call it what it is. It's sin. But blessed is he who is generous to the poor. This is about attitude. When you see someone struggling to get by, do you get angry? Do you get indifferent? Does your heart have compassion? Uh, I used to, in Perth Andover, I used to be the chair of the food bank there for a few years. And every year, we would go around collecting food in the fall, do a, we did a community-wide food drive. And uh, 
almost everybody was always just so generous and wonderful like you folks have been today, but there was always one. You know, you'd go to someone's door and you'd knock on the door and you'd say, hi, we're collecting for the food bank, would you be willing to donate? And they'd say, no. <laughs> say, no, I'm not giving to that food bank. I work hard to put food on my table and they should work hard to put food on their table instead of spending all their money in cigarettes and beer or something like that. And then they'd slam the door in your face and say, okay, thank you very much. You go to the next place. But some people seriously have that attitude, right? And I would try, you know, I would, say, I would try to, you know, well, you know, sir uh, or ma'am, um, a third of the clients that we serve are children, right? This is, they are not at fault here. They're children in elementary school who are hungry. And, uh, no, no, their parents make bad decisions, blah, blah, blah. So, um, some people just won't listen, and that's unfortunate, and that's sin. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. There's also the idea that we must not oppress the poor, that we can't be part of the problem. Listen to this in Proverbs 22. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. A little later in that same chapter. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. In Proverbs 14 again, those who oppress the poor insult their maker. Wow. Those who oppress the poor insult God. That's an insult to God. But helping the poor honors him. You say, well, yeah, I mean, I'm not going out and looking for ways to hurt people, to oppress the poor. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to go steal a sandwich from a homeless guy or something. I'm not that kind of person, right? Uh, but, but that's not really what it's saying. I mean, I hope you're not going to do that. But these verses, yeah, I mean, that would be pretty bad, right? Um, but these verses challenge us because, here's the thing, we live as part of an economic system that does perpetuate injustice and inequality towards the poor. The reality is that the decisions that I make when I go shopping and the decisions that I make when I go online and all these things can perpetuate the oppression of the poor around the world. It really, it really does. We have to think locally and globally, right? Like we have to be careful what, how, we are, how we're acting because we can be adding fuel to the problem of inequality. And, I, and we're very thankful that Randy Stanton is here this morning from Canadian Baptist Ministries. And Randy would be able to, I mean, speak to that probably more than I could, what that looks like, um, because he sees it firsthand, I'm sure, as he travels the world and whatnot. Here's the key passage for us this morning, Proverbs 31, verses 8 to 9. It says this. This is the challenge, really. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. God not only wants us to give of our material resources to help the poor, but he wants us to give of our influence to fight for them. This message is hammered at us in the book of Proverbs. Uh, but it's literally all through the Bible. When you start looking through the scriptures from front to back, you will see that compassion for the poor is a theme that runs through the whole scripture because it is the heart of God. It's the very heart of God. When you start looking at the Old Testament law, 
I'm just going to give you a couple examples, but you'll see in the Old Testament law, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you begin to see how God's design for the society he wanted his people to build had at its center justice for the poor. Uh, for example, the law of gleanings. This is an interesting thing. I think this is so neat when you start looking at this. I mean, because a lot of people read the Old Testament. And they read the law and they go, gee, that God is strict and mean and nasty and cruel. But when you actually start looking at it more carefully, you go, wait a second. This God was so compassionate and so kind and wanted his people to express that same kind of compassion and kindness. Um, and so the law of gleanings. Uh, Leviticus 19 verses 9 to 10 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner, the refugee, and so on. I am the Lord your God, he says. Has anyone here ever picked apples before? Have we got any apple pickers in the place here? I'm not talking about like a you pick, but I'm like meaning like you worked for like a farm and like picked apples. Some of you did that? Yes, okay. So I did that. I did that. Um, for, I grew up in the Annapolis Valley, right? Which is funny, you know, it's called Annapolis Valley, but it's not appleless at all. It's full of apples. Why is it called Annapolis Valley? You ever wondered about that? Um, I don't know. It's a worse name for the valley full of apples. Annapolis Valley. Um, You've never thought of that, have you? But now you're never, ever going to be able to not think about it. Every time you drive to the valley, you're going to go, yeah, an Appleless Valley. I don't understand. Anyway, um, so I grew up in the Annapolis Valley, and of course, being a good valley boy, I worked picking apples for 10 years. I did that uh, as, a, as a teenager, um, and uh, in the university, in the summers, I would work on this farm, and in the fall, we would pick apples. And uh, the way it works on an apple farm is that you go through early in the season and you pick out the first, you do the first round of picking and you get all the apples you can get the first round and leave the ones that aren't quite ready yet. And then uh, you go and do that and then by the time you're done, you're done that, then you go back to where you started and you do the second picking and you pick all the ones that you left the first time. And then in the meantime, the wind blows and apples fall and some of them just aren't right and so they, you just drop them on the ground. And then you go through a third time and you pick drops. Right? And I used to actually, that was my favorite thing, was picking drops, because I could do it way faster than I could pick an apple. So I just preferred to always pick drops, because I made more money. Um, but I would pick drops, and so you go down with buckets, and you literally just scoop up all the old rotten apples and all that stuff. And guess what? That's what makes your graves as apple juice, folks, is those rotten apples from the ground. Mmm, happy Thanksgiving when you gather, drink that this afternoon. Um, it's good, it's fine, I like it too. But anyway, um, <laughs> But what, they, what God commanded the Israelites to do, he said, no, you're not going to do a second picking. You're not going to pick up drops. You're going to go through once, and you're going to pick everything, and then everything else you're going to leave for the poor. And they're going to come and be able to take whatever they want. Now, that's radical. Now, that is not, that's not good business, right? That's, that's not, that, but God is saying, you know, I don't care about your profit margins, Right? I don't care about you getting squeezing the most value out of everything you can get here. I care about people more than profits. And, and, uh, and this is what he built into, his, into the society, what God wanted them to do. And I think we could learn from that. Okay, so that's one part of the Old Testament law, was this law of gleanings. Then there's this idea of the year of Jubilee. This is so cool. This is like, this will, if you don't know about the year of Jubilee, this will blow your mind. So the way... God said, here's how I want your society to work, okay? Every 
50th year. So they do 49 years, and then the 50th year, he said, this is going to be the year of Jubilee. And the way this works is uh, the people of Israel were basically supposed to hit the reset button on all of the injustice and inequality that had built up over a generation. And so every 50th year, God said, I want you to forgive all the debts that people owe you. Maybe your neighbor owes you this, or you got all the, whatever. Forgive it all. Forgive it. I also want you to release every slave. You know, maybe somebody became an indentured servant or whatever to you because they owed you money and they couldn't pay it, so they came to work for you and they're paying off their debts and basically became slaves and all this stuff. Release them all. Set them free. And so first, forgive all debts. Second, release all slaves. And third, everyone gets to go back to their home land, their home property. Return all property that you purchased and everyone gets to go back to their family of origins land. So maybe you grew up, you know, your family three generations ago had a family farm or something and, and now it's been sold multiple times and other people own it well in the, in the Israelite world and the way it was supposed to be was that every 50 years all that land gets returned and you get to go back to your family, your family property. This is, this is crazy. I mean, this is, doesn't, this is not good business sense, all these things. It's not good. It's radical. Radical grace, radical mercy, radical concern for those who have become oppressed and enslaved. And, well, they certainly don't practice it now. This was God, what God designed right into the structure of society of ancient Israel. And yeah, the, the problem was, unfortunately, like the rest of us, is that they didn't keep the law, right? They failed to keep the law on many accounts, and this was something that they did sometimes, but a lot of the time they didn't do it or they didn't completely do it. And, of course, Israel today is not the biblical Israel that it was in the Bible times, so they're not practicing a lot of these things. So, um, so injustice for the poor continued, but you can see the heart of God, right? He said, God says, if I'm designing a society, this is what I want it to look like. And we have gotten so far away from that. We also read about this a lot in the prophets. You come to Isaiah, Amos, some of these other prophets, and God has given them a message to preach to the people, and it's a message of, you have neglected the poor. You've neglected the poor. Why would you expect me to bless you? Why would you expect me to be honored by your worship songs if you're neglecting the poor, if you're oppressing your neighbors? This is a theme all through that. And actually... Israel ends up being conquered in this time of the prophets. They end up being exiled into enemy territory. And the, some of the reasoning that's given, you know, idol worship is one, but another reason that's given for God to lift his blessing from them and allow them to be conquered and captured is because they neglected to keep the law when it comes to caring for the poor. So we see that all through the Old Testament. And then we come to the New Testament. And the New Testament, of course, begins with Jesus, begins with the incarnation, the very act of God coming to identify with the poor himself. And then we have Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, standing up in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And we, when we were in Israel in June, Janet and I went to, a, went to Nazareth and we went to a synagogue, like a, simul, a simulated, uh, reconstructed synagogue um, that would have been like the one that Jesus stood up in. And we read the scripture in Luke chapter 3, 4. Anyway, um, and, this, and basically Jesus gives this message. We, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he says, 
I'm bringing good news to the poor. My message is good news to the poor. And captives are going to be released. And the blind are going to see. And the oppressed are going to go free. And it's the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, he's saying, I'm bringing a year of jubilee. This is what Jesus' ministry was all about. And then he goes out from that synagogue and from that moment and he puts it into action for basically roughly three years. Jesus serves and he, and he spends most of his time with the poor. He doesn't spend most of his time with the powerful people in Jerusalem. No, he spends most of his time in this backwater of Galilee with these very low-income average Joe people and poor people, people who are suffering, people who are sick and destitute, widows, and so on and so on. People who are at the lowest end of society. Jesus pours his heart into them and pours his time into them and he heals their, their diseases and he sets people free from, from demon possession and he feeds the hungry and he does all these wonderful things to give us an example and he puts this into action. And then he commands his disciples, he teaches his followers to do the same, to live with the same kind of compassion. And he teaches at the Sermon on the Mount some of these ideas and in the parables like the Good Samaritan. And he, and he gives them a very clear command like in Luke 12 where he says, sell your possessions. Luke 12, 33, he says to his disciples, sell your possessions and give to those in need. You know, sometimes we think that's just what he said to the rich young ruler, right? He said to the rich young ruler, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He didn't just command that to the rich young ruler. He commanded it to everyone who follows him. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. So this was Jesus' ministry, of course. And then, at the end of his ministry on earth, he goes to the cross. The ultimate example of generosity through his death. And when he dies for our sins... He pays our debt. And he sets us free. The year of Jubilee. Amen. There's a song about that, isn't it? It's the year of Jubilee. Yeah, it's good. Okay, now the early church. The early church. So the Christians, the church continues in the vein of Christ. They continue with this. Uh, and they carry on his teaching. The Apostle Paul, if you go to the next slide, the Apostle Paul says, Philippians chapter 2, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We live in a selfie world, don't we, right? We're all here taking selfies, and we're looking at ourselves, and, we're, and we care so much about ourselves. And, and one of the main themes of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to stop looking at ourselves all the time, and stop thinking about ourselves and being selfish in our own interests, and look to the interests of others. James the brother of Jesus. He says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He doesn't say, Religion that is pure and undefiled is going to church every Sunday and singing worship songs. And, and no, I mean, that's good. No problem with that. We're doing that this morning. Praise God. It's, it's no, but if that's what your religion is, if your religion is going to a church service and going to Bible study, you've missed, your, you've missed it. <laughs> All right? You've missed it. Pure religion that is undefiled before God is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to care for the least of these, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. John, one of the disciples of Jesus, says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? 
Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. In the Roman Empire, uh, the church had a reputation. So the Roman Empire was not Christian. They were pagan. Um, and, but the, the Christianity was spreading like wildfire through the Roman Empire. And there was an emperor, Julian, who came along. And Julian was called Julian the Apostate by the church because he did not love the Lord. Constantine was his uncle. Constantine was the first Christian em emperor. I use that very loosely because he himself expressed uh, faith in Christ, but he really didn't live uh, by Christian values. Uh, I mean, I think he killed his wife and some of his children. I mean, he was a rotten guy. Okay, we some oh, Constantine's so great. Mm, I might want to reread history. Um, but anyway, um, but uh, Constantine was the first Christian emperor, and then Julian, his nephew, came after him, and Julian hated the church. He didn't want anything to do with it, uh, and so he wanted to revert Rome back to paganism. And, uh, but Julian had a problem with that. See, the, the, his problem, his difficulty in trying to win uh, the Roman Empire back to paganism was that Christianity was becoming very, very popular. And one of the reasons was because they cared for the poor. They loved people. They were, and so they had this reputation for being so generous and kind. This is what the Emperor Julian actually wrote. He, he, was, he was complaining about, to a friend uh, in, in a letter that Christians, because of their kindness and compassion, were making the pagans look bad. As he said this, um, he urged, Julian urged his pagan counterparts that they needed to, quote, equal the virtues of the Christians. For recent Christian growth was caused by their moral character, even if pretended. Of course, he thought, they're faking it. They're just doing this to win. They're not genuine. And by their benevolence towards strangers and care for the grave of the dead. Yes, they even care for dead people. What is wrong with these people? Julian also wrote, the impious Galileans. That was his derogatory term for Christians. They're just from this backwater of Galilee. They're not important, right? The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that these people lack aid from us. He's, he's frustrated because these Christians, not only do they care for the Christian brothers and sisters, they care for pagans too. They give money to, and they, they help and support and feed people that don't even agree with them. What's wrong with these crazy people? They're making us look bad. So this is what Julian was writing in 362 AD. The Christian movement was known, the Jesus movement was known for compassion. We should be known by this too. Amen? Amen. Amen. This is what our reputation should be. People talk about the church. They should say, oh, those Christians, they give so much to the poor, and they're so kind and generous. When I was in Perth Andover, I was part of the refugee sponsorship committee, and, uh, and uh, I would post things on Facebook that were you know, pleading the cause, pleading the case of, the refuge, of refugees and whatnot. And, and there was people, as you probably know, that didn't agree, that we shouldn't be bringing these people here and all this stuff. And... Uh, and so I would get attacked online uh, from people in the community. And uh, one person, I remember one said, some person said, you're a bleeding heart liberal. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I just, here's the thing. If I'm going to be mocked for my faith, I'm very thankful that it's for loving people and not for hating people, right? And this is what should be true for all of us. If you persecute people, if people persecute you, sorry, because you care for the poor, Wear that as a badge of honor. 
because you're walking in step with the heart of God. All right, let me wrap this up. I know some of you have turkey in the oven, myself included. We need to get home, mash those potatoes. We live in a world of massive inequality. We do. Um, I was in Kenya with CBM in the year 2008 as a student with a Praxis program. And one of the things that struck me when we visited Kenya is there's this huge slum in Nairobi. And not far from this huge slum are these beautiful, gorgeous homes of the wealthy. Uh, and this picture is actually from Kenya. Um, and you can see this slum-like situation. And then just on the other side of the fence, this massive hotel where every room has its own swimming pool. Um, this is a, just a, this is a little snapshot of what happens all the time in the world we live in. This juxtaposition uh, of mansions next door to slums uh, is, is something that exists less visibly everywhere in the world. The levels of inequality between rich and poor on earth is hard to wrap our heads around. I was listening to CBC Radio a couple weeks ago. They said that Jeff Bezos, who's the CEO of Amazon, that he makes $4.5 million an hour himself. Not the company, but himself. And that's over, they said, over $1,200 per second. Every second, Jeff Bezos makes another 1200 bucks. Every second. Isn't that crazy? And you contrast that with the reality, as Brenda shared this morning, that 800 million people live in abject poverty. Around 3 million children every year under the age of 5 die from preventable causes. According to the World Health Organization, they could be saved if treated with simple, affordable interventions, including immunization, adequate nutrition, safe water and food, and appropriate care by a trained health provider when needed. Contrast these two realities that we live in in this world. Uh, I heard someone say one time, and I checked to make sure it was true, and it is, that bringing water and sanitation to all the world would cost about $10 billion a year. That's it. $10 billion. Now, it seems like a lot, but they also say that's about the same amount of money that Americans spend each year on ice cream. Christians should not tolerate these realities. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. So, application. What do we do with this information? Well, as I said, it should affect how we live. It should affect how we shop. It should affect what we choose to speak up about, how we use our time, what we do with our money. And yes, I'm going to go there. It should even affect how we vote. I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but when you're thinking about how you're going to vote, you've got to be thinking about this stuff. Most of the parties want you to think about you, right? You notice that? Their platforms are all about how you can get ahead. It's time for you to get ahead. Is it, though? Is it really? Maybe we need to think about 
others. On a neighborhood level, on a community level, on a global level, I think it's time for us to sacrifice for others. I'm going to give you two quick examples. One, Jimmy Carter. You guys seen this in the news this week? Jimmy Carter. Again, I'm getting political, but don't worry. I'm not going to say anything, whether, you know, whatever Democrat, Republican. That's not my point. My point is, Jimmy Carter is 95 years old. 95 years old. He still teaches Sunday school at his Baptist church in Georgia. He loves the Lord. He's a strong follower of Jesus Christ. And this week, he volunteers with... uh, Habitat for Humanity helps build houses for those who can't afford homes uh, all over North America. And this week he fell and he smashed up his eye and hurt himself. And the very next day, he didn't slow him down. They patched up his eye and he went right back at it, serving with Habitat for Humanity. That's a great example of a person using their resources and their time wisely for the kingdom of God. Another person is Ron Sider. This man, uh, he spoke at Simpson Lectures uh, a few years ago, I went and heard him speak. I was really impressed with him. He wrote a book in the 1970s called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. This is a good read, by the way. Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And uh, when he spoke, you know, he, he shared a lot of things were really, really powerful at Acadia. One of the things that he really struck, struck me the most of what he said was that uh, he and his wife, you know, they had a nice big home and lots, you know, two cars and like they had a comfortable life. And he realized, I don't need all of this stuff. And so they actually like sold most of their possessions and downsized their home and like moved into like a duplex or something, just a very modest home so that more of his income and more of what he makes as he travels and speaks and all these things and from book sales could go towards the poor. So he put his money where his mouth was. And, uh, and I, just the simple phrase that st- struck with me, and I don't know if he said it or someone else said it, but can I live simply so others can simply live? How about these young people on Tuesday night? Man, they went out, they took, they took time out of their youth group. I mean, they have a worship band and they have games and they have a great fun time when they come together on Tuesday night, but they decided that we're not going to do that this week. Instead, and actually I think they're going to start doing this twice a month, um, instead of coming here to be fed and to have fun, they're going to go out into the community and they're going to start giving of their time to serve. So they did this food drive. They also Some kids went up to the seniors home, right, as well, and, and went up there and volunteered. This is awesome. I am so impressed and inspired by this emerging generation. Man, we have some young people that love the Lord and love their neighbors, and that's a good thing. Amen. That's, yeah, praise God. Imagine, imagine if more Christians were willing to do that sort of thing, to use their resources, their time, their influence, to fight against poverty and oppression. I am filled with hope, and I'm filled with optimism. And we might just see God use His church as we start obeying these commands. We might just see God start to use His church to answer the prayer that we have been praying for centuries. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to close with a poem. 
And uh, Kyla, if you wanted to come and just play behind this as I read. Um, This can be overwhelming when we think about all of the needs in our world. We can just feel this huge burden and this guilt and and this sense of like, we've got to do everything we can and solve all these problems at once. And I like how simply this poem illustrates it. If each of us could just start by caring for a neighbor in need. If we could just start by seeing the people that need help around us and start there. Take that first step. So let me read this poem. It's called At the Winter Theater. His feather flame doused dull by icy cold. The cardinal hunched into the rough green feeder, but ate no seed. Through binoculars I saw, festered and useless, his beak broken at the root. Then two, one blazing, one gray, rode the swirling weather into my vision and lighted at his side. Unhurried, as if possessing the patience of God, they cracked sunflowers and fed him, beak to wounded beak, choice meats. Each morning and afternoon, the winter long, that odd triumvirate, that trinity of need, returned and ate their sacrament of broken seed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us follow you to the edges of society where people are lonely, suffering, and in great need. Let us give freely with appreciation for all you've given to us. Help us to be like the bird who feeds his neighbor with the broken beak. And this Thanksgiving day, as we sit together as family and friends, surrounded by abundance, may we be motivated by our blessing and with gratitude to become more obedient every day to the clear commands of your word. Give us new hearts, Lord. Make our heartbeat your heartbeat.